Everybody okay? I love that we talked so loud that we couldn't even start the service today. That's holy noise and conversation. I see the fall colors are out. Everybody excited about that? I don't mean the trees. I mean the Denver Broncos jerseys and stuff that find their ways in. Welcome. That's right. <laughs> the f- orange is apparently the color of the fall. <clears throat> uh, we, I, I am not from, I'm from southern Oklahoma, and uh, I, we do not, we love football. Just love the football. And it helps that we're good at it. So that's there. But one thing that I didn't realize till I moved to Europe is that I am incredibly uh, condescending or negative or unsupportive of soccer. And I, I've watched soccer. I've given it a go. I'm sorry if that's your sport. I just can't get full-grown men getting touched and someone just breezed by them and falling down like someone took a baseball bat to their knee. All right? That, there's something inside of me that when I see people flop in soccer, it says your whole sport's messed up, right? And I don't know how to fix soccer. And it's sort of the last soccer game I went to uh, was France-Germany, and there was bombs that went off and a terrorist attack. So I just kind of took that as the Lord being like, just stay away, Colby. This ain't you. This is not you. This is not your people. Other people will reach people that like soccer with the gospel. So I struggle, I struggle watching soccer, it seems slow to me, I'm, I'm sure you're going to tell me it's, it's the beautiful sport, and I will tell you as an American, it's, it seems like a sport for women and children, but that's, that's between us, and we, we can agree to disagree, alright, on soccer, and, but I'm trying to grow as a person and as a family, and in like appreciating things, and so uh, soccer was an option for our kids, and we put our kids into soccer because we believe like we want the kids to experience a lot of different sports events. My kids showed up um, to soccer and uh, scored a couple goals on his first thing I was really proud of and then he also tackled three people illegally which I was more proud of. And it occurred to me that at some point I should have actually told him what the game of soccer is because it basically was just MMA that we kick a ball around and boxing. And so he figured it out a little bit into it. And I realized that a lot of us, when we learn, we come to things and we need to have an original experience with something ourselves before we see it. And here's one thing for me playing sports that I did. I don't know if this happened to you. I saw someone else do something better than me. Like you ever see someone dribble a basketball and it looks like they just were born to do that. And then you go home and you try to dribble like them and you're like, that's going to take me some time, right? But you, you mirror, you mimic people, right? And, and then you get coaches who come alongside and say, this is the way the game is supposed to be played. Who's ever heard that phrase before? This is the way the game's supposed to be played. And they don't just give you examples of how to jump or run or make a cut or to handle the ball a certain way, but they actually break down each movement and tell you the reason why behind that movement. And so what we see in chapter 2 of 1 Thessalonians is Paul is training them. He's discipling them. They have imitated him in chapter 1. But in chapter 2, he's actually going to break down how he came to them. He's going to get into the nuts and bolts of that and coach them up a little bit. And say, if you're going to take the gospel places and you're going to serve Jesus in different pockets of society, I want you to know how I came to you so that you can in health and in power go to them. Are you with me? He's going to coach them up a little bit. He's going to break movements down. He's going to say, you can learn a lot from just looking at someone's example and imitating them. But good coaches just don't give you things to imitate they actually give you knowledge and understanding of what's behind the curtain. You know what I'm saying? And so Paul's going to do that for us. And so today, um, my prayer is, is that um, God would rescue you um, from thinking um, that you can't do this. That you can't have an impact in the gospel and your family have an impact with the gospel in this church, 
have an impact with the gospel in your workplace, or backpacking across a mountain pass. Um, I think some of us think that we have nothing to give to the kingdom of God. And God stands ready to coach us and train us and equip us and give us power to do more than what you have in your natural man to do. Do you hear me? I come to argue that you have something to give. I come to argue what the Bible's going to say is you, Christian, can get better even at the things that God's called you to do. None of us have re reached the Michael Jordan of spirituality in here. Amen? We've all got new things to learn. And so today, I, I just want to come and, and ask God to humble our hearts. So if you want to pray, maybe bow your heads. Um, we've been doing this spiritual exercise before we start the sermons. So just bow and maybe go before God in prayer. Maybe just to acknowledge that you still need God to train you. You still need God to exhort you, to coach you. Maybe this would be a space to humble your heart and realize that God's going to use other people to do that for you as a part of His plan. Maybe um, you haven't thought of it this way, but maybe you would thank God that he's actually going to use you to train and coach and exhort and encourage others. As scary as that is, and maybe just confess the fear that's maybe there or the insecurities. I think maybe this is an appropriate time for you to repent um, of unbelief and the fact that you, you've somehow convinced yourself you have nothing to give the rest of us. Or that you don't have a role to play in this church. You don't have a role to play in the kingdom, in your house churches, in your families. Repent of that mess. God's word is going to say you have something to give. Dear Heavenly Father, we enter your courts with thanksgiving in your presence with praise. God, you are a good father who gives good gifts. You've given each one of us life and breath and talents in our natural man, and above and beyond that, from heaven you have given each one of us, filled with your Holy Spirit, spiritual gifts for the building up and the equipping of the body. And so God, um, forgive us where we've used our gifts for selfish reasons. Forgive us where we've hidden our light, hidden our giftedness, isolated ourselves. Forgive us um, where we haven't plugged in and made much of your name. Forgive us where we've rejected your training and rejected your coaching, rejected your exhortation, thinking that we can wing this Jesus thing and be okay. Father, we come to your word today and we want to learn, God. We realize that anytime we learn your spiritual truths and your gospel in such a way that we walk out this door different that's a miracle and so God come and do miracles among hard-hearted thick-headed people like us God father rescue us from thinking we have nothing to give so father come and nourish us by your gospel nourish us by your truth that we might take those resources of power in your spirit to others who are starving to death and whose hearts are empty. Father, do something so great as that, we ask in the strong name of Jesus. Everyone said, Amen. Amen. Chapter 1, Paul comes to this church at Thessalonica. He's there for a very short period of time. And we said he left disciples there. And that one of the arguments that we've been making from this book and why we've dove into this is the church at Thessalonica is a good church. And that's bothered some of us because some of us have only had experience with bad churches like at Corinth. And so we need to have this bother us and move us to believe that good church is even possible 
because a bunch of bankrupt churches spiritually are all over the place. So if we want to be a good church, we've got to model ourselves after what good churches look like in the New Testament. Amen or oh me? Come on. So we've come to this book and we want to distill out and mine from this how can we put the same truths that captivated them into the blood of our church so that we model some of the same health they have? Are y'all with that? Okay, so we come in, and the first thing he talks about is he talks about how um, every time he prays for them, this church causes him, it triggers him to pray, irresistibly pray. And we said, what are you remembered for? We said, Do your, does your life trigger other people to praise God? Or is your life and your name something when it's brought up in conversation it actually draws people away from Christ and from the good? So what we see here is that their reputation had been so developed um, that they had become an example to the regions around them and their faith was worth multiplying in regions close to them. If New Mexicans modeled their church after Thessalonica, it's a good thing, not a bad thing. If Chinese Christians modeled their churches after Thessalonica, that's a good thing. And so we see here true conversion and true mission. Passionate, serious following of Jesus that is imitatable and is spreading absolutely everywhere. God is going to use this church strategically located on a Via Ignacia, this highway that's, that cut through the Roman Empire, and it's going to spread to Pagosa Springs in Durango. I mean, it's just going to go down this highway in all directions. And so he talks about this repentance that they did in such a way they repented from idolatry. And we talked about idolatry being things that we, we give our affection to. It's not just golden bear statues, even though some of us got those. It's not just statues. It's a matter of things that you give your affections to points you to what you worship. Because at your base, your affections and your work is your worship. Now, there's the thing. You can go to food. Come on, Baptist. And food can become ultimate in your life. And you can have your whole life oriented around food, pioneer women. And it become absolute idolatry for you. Because your affection's tied up in it. It dictates for you. You either feel good if you have it or you feel depressed if you don't. I know we shouldn't talk about gluttony. This is church, right? That thing can come to control your life. Food can do that to you. It's a narcotic. Right? Or we can come to food through the gospel seeing God has given all things for our joy and His praise and through delicious fajitas worship and praise His name. And I could go through topic after topic after topic with this and argue whether your idols are superstitious like statues or they're sophisticated like BMWs. It doesn't really matter. That things are trying to draw our idolatrous hearts, draw affection out towards them and away from the true and living God. Whether that's sex. Sex is given by God and is a good thing to be done as God has prescribed it and hardwired it to work best. And either we're looking through sexuality to the glory of God or we're making sex ultimate in our life and pornography is controlling you. Are we, did we get real enough there? Do we see this? And we can go money. We can go houses. We can go any possession. Here's the silliness of our sin. There is no limit to what we make idols out of. Read the Old Testament. And in the moment that that seems silly, then look at your life. And the things that have controlled you, that God is rescuing you from. And it says how they turn from idols and sin to the living God is a mark of their genuine conversion. And he says it's so legit that the Apostle Paul says, I need not say anything to you. And as a long-winded preacher... This totally captures me that they have to be so solid that they shut Paul's mouth. And then he's going to write five more chapters, which is brilliant, right? So we see what this general conversion is. Now, I want to talk about this as, as a break as we go into this. 
Um, I get in debates sometimes about what Christianity is, and people will come and say, you Christians, this, the church, this, and these sorts of things. And I'll start to tell them, I say, why don't you define for me what a Christian is? Or, this is a really fun practice, ask them, define for me what the central message of Christianity is. Tell me. And then when they come to it and they start saying, you hate the gays, and you're trying to protect your guns, I start to say, the Bible would argue a true Christian is someone who has been rescued from their sin by the gospel, and the central message of Christianity is a person, Jesus Christ. And if you're not talking about that, I don't have to defend Westboro Baptist Church. Come on now. Or every Joel Osteen or third person that claims the name of Jesus who's got no accountability or connection to my body. Do you see what I'm saying? So what we see here is a true conversion and true Christianity. And I love to take lost people or unbelievers or skeptics and say, if you're really concerned about what true Christianity is, because I think... I would, I would maybe even agree with you that some of these things are not true Christianity. But why don't we actually look from the Bible? Would you be so bold or are you scared to death to actually look and see what Christianity is? See, you can't... I know we live in secular culture, so I want to prepare you to deal with secular people. Secular people cannot legitimately hate Christianity if they don't know legitimately what it is. One of those, we'd rather be hated for what we are than loved for what we're not. And so in this moment, like, he is laying out what a true Christian is. And you either love that or you hate that. You either are that or you are not that. And he's going to build off of that and he's going to train them. They're not at day one, but he's going to train them to keep going further down the road in chapter two. All right, let's look at chapter two. For you yourselves know... Brothers. Now, there's no plural in Greek. for It's brothers and sisters when it's plural. Um, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we'd already been suffered and shamefully treated at Philippi. And you remember we talked about this when we did the survey of Acts. They were stripped naked at Philippi, beaten, and thrown in basically a dog kennel of a prison, right? And they were treated like that, but they persevered. God does some crazy stuff in his jail ministry. By the way, Paul did jail ministry from the inside out, right? And, and it, through, that, through that perseverance, they didn't quit when they got their butts kicked. Through that, jailers and families are going to get saved at Philippi, and we're going to have a church there too, right? They had been treated outrageously at Philippi, but they just didn't let it stop them. As you know, again, as you know, mark that. I'm going to come back to that in a sec. We had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. Many of us avoid conflict like it's the plague, right? If there is conflict on social media, we just unfriend people. That's how much we avoid it. Not even talking face-to-face conflict, we're talking face-to-computer. And we're like, not for me, not today, Satan, unfriend, right? Like we, avo- we sweep things under the rug and stuff, and you see that Like for us, we stop preaching the gospel at the first inconvenience. He doubles down on boldness when conflict arises because he knows what he's doing is right. Keep going. But as we have been, okay, for our pre-appeal, so he's appealing to them to trust Jesus and to repent of sin does not spring from error. There's doctrinal purity here. It's not something that is wrong or impurity, or any attempt to deceive, right? Uh, Just a quick break here. Do you realize, as Americans, I would argue we're the most lied to people in in the history of humanity? Nobody's been lied to. One thing is, we have more information in one edition of the New York Times than people in the Middle Ages had in their whole lifetime. We are flood, we're information age. We're flooded with information. Do you, can you, I mean, think for a minute. If you have a TV, and I know some people from Vallecito are here. You guys don't even have running water. It's fine, okay? But if you have a TV, can you think how many hours on hours 
of commercials you've seen. Some of you people hate football. You watch the Super Bowl just for the commercials. Truth booth right here. Okay, come on. How many hours of commercials have you seen in your life? Do you realize you can't drive down the, the highway without marketing? How many people have spent hours on hours with salesmen trying to sell you something? How, how, many, how many people have gotten the email from someone in Nigeria that has a lot of gold <laughs> and all they need is your bank account information for whatever reason, right? There's some Nigerian prince who has tons of gold and they just need you to step up to the plate. We are the most marketed to, we are flooded with it, we have access to marketing and deceit and in and, and some ways bait and switch more than any other people have had access to in their life. I mean, that's just your space of our life. Do you realize how callous that can make us? Do you realize how problematic that can be? And he's coming to you, he's like, I didn't come to sell you jack. I, I came to be God honest with you, even at great expense to myself. See, Paul came to them not from what he could get from them, but what he could give. Are you tracking with that? I'm going to get back into this in a second. Okay. But as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak. Let me tell you this. If you claim to be a Christian in here, someone who has believed the gospel and filled with the Holy Spirit, God has approved you to be an ambassador of that gospel to someone somewhere. Open your mouth. So we speak. So we speak. Not to please men, but to please God who tests our hearts. He can stand before God and say, God who knows all can look at my heart and you can look at the suffering I was going through and know that the motivation of which I came to give you this gospel was pure. I, I, I just want to say, church, not everybody who talks spirituality or Jesus or God or church has that same quality. The Bible is full of defenses against false teachers and charlatans. Jesus taught against false teachers saying you would know them by their fruit. You know that wolf in sheep's clothing? That's a red letter Bible thing. Right? Paul's going to go to great expense to talk about um, people that will try to deceive within the church, many times coming from within the church to rip the church apart. And there was, there's tends to be some trends there between doing it for money and doing it for sexual exploitation. And let me tell you this, if false teachers were not savvy and they were not slick, nobody would follow them. So don't come in thinking they're going to be like wearing tinfoil hats and looking all crazy be like, talking about aliens. It's like, oh, that seems like a false teacher. They're not easy to identify. Some may be. That guy probably. But not all are easy to identify. Do you hear me? You're going to have to have biblical wisdom and godly counsel from, from God's people to be able to navigate some of the false teaching that is pervasive in our culture. Do you hear me? Okay, let's keep going. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. So I love this. This church did not need Paul to come and constantly stroke their ego and tell them what they wanted to hear. He didn't have to flatter them. That doesn't seem real like Paul's style anyways if you read like Romans or Galatians. He would, I'm not even sure he had it in the tool bag. Um, but that being said, he just didn't flatter people. He told people the truth and he loved them. And he cared for them. We're going to see that at the end of this chapter, next chapter. But the truth is, he had no business being a fake and a phony and flattering people. He told them the truth. Maybe a break here. Do you realize something weird about Christians? If you stepped out and you were from outside Christianity and you looked at the church, do you realize we show up every week regularly? Well, some of you show up semi-regularly. But like, you know, once the snow is thick, we'll, we'll catch you in the spring. All right, so you show up regularly to, to have someone call out your sin and tell you that you can't fix yourself and that you need Jesus. 
Nobody else does stuff like that. Do you realize in the culture, we deflect, we, we only read internet articles that agree with us, and we never hang out with people who disagree with us on anything. We avoid those people. But we come to church every Sunday, and if preaching from the Bible is good, it doesn't it call out your sin? Doesn't it tell you you're broken? And, and doesn't it tell you that you can't fix yourself and that you need something outside yourself, namely Jesus? Isn't that crazy when you think about the rest of the world that huddles around just a bunch of people that agree with them? You come every week here trying um, to go deeper and further, and you, and you come for correction. And it's this beautiful thing. And he says, I just don't flatter people. It's not my game. It's not good for you. And it, it makes me look shady. Doesn't it? Let's keep going. For as you know, a pretext for greed, God is witness. Let me tell you this. There's a lot of people, I don't care, Buddhist or Muslim or so-called Christian, that if you look behind, and I, I'm a young person, so I have trouble with this to begin with, of that so much about what is done in the name of religion is really about money. And Paul right here says, man, if i got to make tents to make this happen, it goes. Now, he's not going to argue. He's going to argue that those that preach the gospel and live by the gospel should be supported by the gospel. He will argue. I know it's weird for me to talk about this since I'm a pastor here. But that, that those that are going to come after and pastor at Thessalonica, you don't muzzle the ox that you should supply their needs. He's going to argue that. But when he starts this church, because in its infancy, he does not want outsiders to be able to levy the accusation of greed and have it stick. So while he actually could have pulled a paycheck as an apostle planting the church in support from that, he foregone it, forgo it, for, I don't know how exactly to say that, he went without it, um, in order so that this accusation right here has got no legs. Right? They can't say he's greedy, he took no money from them. So think about this. He has the right to have a paycheck for his position and for you know, apostles and teachers and pastors to come after him. He'll argue for that in other books of the Bible. But in this situation, he says, I actually think going without the paycheck here will give me more credibility to preach the gospel. The gospel's more important. I'm putting it out in front. Think about that. He, he negates in advance attacks that he understands that they're going to bring. Okay, nor do we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, that we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. That's talking about that demands as apostles of Christ is particularly hinting at um, support financially or those sorts of things. For we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we're ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our own selves. That, the good translation is our, our very soul because you have become very dear to us. Okay, so look back in verse 1. For you yourselves know. He is banking on what they already know. In verse 2, as you know. 2.5, as you know. 2.9, for you remember. 2.10, you are witnesses. 2.11, for you know how. Paul validates his message from a track record of holiness that he's lived in front of them. And in some ways, he's defending against attacks that people are levying against him. Here's what's happening. Unbelievers had to justify their unbelief, and they found it incredibly more convenient to attack Paul's credibility than it is to deal with the message he preached that confronted their sin and unbelief. If they did that to Paul, do you think they won't do it to you? Think about this. Jesus himself preached the gospel and people started saying he's demon-possessed. If they did that with the perfect divine Son of God, don't you think they're going to talk trash about you? But the great thing about how Paul lived is that he could actually go to his life and their darts just didn't stick to him. Paul's holiness 
Now, I know this is a dirty word because in our culture, there is no positive word for holiness, right? You're a holy roller. That's negative, right? Well, it depends on your persuasion. Okay, maybe that's perfect for you. Or holier than thou. Anybody know what that means? Tell me a positive connotation for the word holy. And yet, I would argue above love and above justice, it's the primary characteristic of God. He says, be holy as I am holy. Angels circle the throne room of God yelling, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The earth is filled with His glory. He's glorious because He's holy. You're talking about a loaded, meaningful, powerful word. For us, as God calls us to be holy as He is holy, this is how my simple pastoral definition for us, just a working definition, holiness is how much you're like Jesus. And how unholy or antichrist you are is how much you're not like Jesus. There are marks of maturity in Paul's life that show him to be like Jesus. That's his holiness. That's his life. That's his character. And we can play semantics on some other words. But it backs up what he preached. Having worked um, with college students for a real long time on a secular campus where everybody was looking for excuses to attack them and to pick their lives apart and stuff, um, one of the things that I, I just have seen in the church and seen among college students is that every, everyone undervalues holiness. Everyone. Nobody in any church I've ever been in or any ministry I've been a part of has a high enough view of holiness. We all are incredibly quick to make compromises on character, aren't we? I mean, we just got to be honest about that. We're weak, we do that. Everyone undervalues holiness. But, but what, what's going to happen here is those that have seen and preached the gospel and seen how it amends their message see that they can't do missions without it. You can't do missions without holiness. You've got to have some mark of the gospel transforming your life to look like Jesus that backs up. I'm not saying you've got to be the Apostle Paul and you know, like 90% down the road. But you've got to be able to point to some place in your life saying, sexual sin had this hold on me, and now because of the gospel, I'm walking away from this. And the, the steps that have been walked away from there by God's grace, that's the holiness because you're not like the world no more. You're becoming more like Jesus. Amen? Money used to dictate everything I did, the decisions I made, right? I, like money, if, it, if I, there wasn't... if the the budget sheet didn't make sense. I didn't make that decision. But because the gospel came in my life, I started to see that God provided for me. God took care of me. And my priorities for where I spend my resources are becoming like God's priorities. You hear what I'm saying? That change of heart and affection and activity in your life, that's your holiness. It doesn't mean that you've got to arrive and be the person selling all your good, doing everything, like, you know, Apostle Paul level thing, but you're on a journey there. Does that make sense? And the steps that you've taken on that journey is, is holiness that you can point back to for unbelievers and lost people and say, this is what the gospel has done for me and it backs up this message that I'm preaching to you that can change your life. Do you hear what I'm saying? Paul's holiness backs him up. That's why he can come to him and say, you know, you know, you know. He is like a defendant on trial, but he's not getting defensive. He doesn't have to because he knows these accusations don't stick. Um, Paul has accusations levied against him that he knows are not true. So he refuses to let them stick or distract anyone from the message. Let me tell you the truth, church. You cannot expect the world to play fair. Some of us go out to the world and we expect them to treat us with honesty and respect and all these things like as Christians. And yet we look at the Bible and they didn't do Jesus that way. They didn't do Paul that way. But you somehow think you're the exception to the rule and they're going to play fair with you. And only going to tell the truth on you and there will never be accusations against you that are false. Somebody laugh because it's silly. He defends without having to get defensive because he knows who he is what he's doing, and how he preached. Um, okay, quick thing. Uh, we play board games at our house. Uh, I like board games um, because I like to talk trash, just to be honest. All right? 
And we have people over every so often, and we play some board games. They're real competitive. I'm not talking Monopoly or things like this. I'm talking strategy, you know? It weeds out people really quick, okay? So we play board games and stuff, and we found this new board game called Werewolf. This game has been so good for my pastoral ministry at this church. Basically, here's how the game works. Everybody sits at a table. It's like nine people, and you pass out cards. Everybody has a card. It either says villager or werewolf. And there's like one, maybe two werewolves in our little village. Just for time's sake, we'll call this village Bayfield. Everybody goes around and says who they are. I'm the baker at the village. I make great bread, right? I'm, I'm Ronnie Foster. I kill werewolves, right? You go, you go around and everybody makes up a story of who they are in this village, Nighttime happens, everybody closes their eyes, the werewolf gets to open his eyes, and he chooses a villager uh, to assassinate, right? That person there, daytime, everybody wakes up, everybody looks up, come to find out, Ronnie Foster lost to the werewolf this time, Ronnie Foster in the village, he died, okay? The village now has what I would call a church business meeting, and they decide who is the werewolf, with no information. So what ends up happening is people in the game look around and said, you know what? The Ireland seem real shady. I think they're the werewolf. Let's kill them. <laughs> and then all of a sudden there's debate and it's like, no, I think, I think it's the Coley's. Usually it's in truth the Dean's. <laughs> right? And so... There's just this debate that it's so accusations start flying. And at the end of the thing, the village has to vote one person to kill as the werewolf. And if they vote that person, that person flips their card and either they're the wolf or they're, they're, not. they're not. Here's the crazy thing about this game. Because I like to play the moderator and actually see who's good at lying. Um, <laughs> the great thing about this game is you can see people, when accusations are coming against them, get defensive. And don't they kind of incriminate themselves? Right? They start saying, I'm not the werewolf, I don't think. <laughs> you know? Or like, I, I don't even like dogs, much less wolves. Right? And, and, the, the, and basically, people actually figure out who is the wolf and who's not based on their defense. See, Paul comes to his defense, and he can legitimately, with calm and clarity say, this is just not who I am. I'm not the wolf among you. I don't got to get defensive about this. Because you yourselves know the track record I've had in your village. You see what I'm saying? Okay, let's keep going. 2-1. Our coming to you was not in vain. Meaningful coming to places require we aim to please God, not man. And I want to give you some marks from the verses below, of meaningfully coming to a place. So here's what I want you loading in your computer right now. You come to work, amen? You come to family reunions. Thanksgiving's coming, some of you have already got pumpkins ready. Right? You come to the grocery store. You come to the sports fields. Paul says his coming was meaningful, not in vain. You know how we know that? People got saved and they started getting discipled to get closer to Jesus. I would argue that's meaningful coming to a place. Amen? So he's saying, if you want your life to count, it's, it can't be what you're taking from people. It's about coming to a place and what you can give to a place. All right? And I'm going to give you some marks. I'm, I, I just made notes out of the scripture. This is not witty or anything like that. First thing in verse 2, he says... He had, if you want to be meaningful and you're coming to a place, your workplace, your family, your impact and who God has given you, your people group, your mission field, you got to have boldness to declare the gospel in verse 2. Amen? Give me an amen or no me. Either you're in or out on this. you got to be undeterred by suffering, shame, and conflict in verse 2. Was he undeterred by suffering, shame, and conflict? Three, pure motives in your appeal. Verse 3. Did he have pure motives? Yes. Let me tell you, church, you got to have pure motives. 
If you're trying to use people, people are a project, people are this, people are that. If you have motives other than pure gospel-centered motives, people will see right through that mess. Remember, they've been marketed to their whole life. They know the difference. Speak to please God, not man. Verse 4. Ability to forego legitimate demands. You're like, wait a minute. I'm an American. I got rights. Yeah, but are you willing to submit those rights in order to preach the gospel to someone? Because that's where the rubber meets the road. They were able to forego legitimate demands, including financial ones, to meet other spiritual needs. Are you willing to do that? Or if church doesn't look like McDonald's, you're out. They were gentle in care for other people. Can you be gentle? Give, they gave their self and their soul along with the gospel. Can you give not just information, but can you give your soul to people? Yourself. They labored and toiled, which sounds like dirty work, dirty words to young people, I know, while you proclaim the gospel. Can you not just proclaim the gospel, but labor and toil while you do it? We see that in verse 9. They have holy, righteous, and blameless conduct. In, in verse 10, they exhort, they encourage, they charge like a father. Verse 11, can you encourage people? Or do you think that your gift is the gift of criticism? Can you exhort people? Can you challenge people to go further? Okay. Also, so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to take those things and I'm going to make a negative out of them so that you really get the point of how, co how Paul is coaching you. Because sometimes we coach by telling people, do these things, and then we also coach by saying, please do not do this thing. So I'm going to invert these and listen to how they sound that way. Also then, note this sin. Note these sins that will rob us from glorifying God in our coming places and our going places. You will rob God of glory and yourself of joy if you lack boldness in the gospel. You will rob God of glory and yourself of joy if you let shame, affliction, and conflict cause you to quit. Do you hear me? You will rob God of glory and yourself of joy if there is error, impurity, or deception in your service of others. You will rob God of glory and yourself of joy if you are a man-pleaser above being a God-pleaser. See, there is going to come times where man wants you to do one thing and God wants you to do another. And I'll just tell you the truth. As a leader in the church, that happens to me all the time. Because every one of you has an opinion about what I should be doing or how this church should be ran or what the elders should be doing, right? And it, it can be crippling. It can be crippling to you to have to keep up with this jury of peers and keep everybody happy. So it, it's freedom to decide in advance. To, like, I, he's my Lord, not a group of people. Amen? That at the end of the day, if I got to choose between you guys and God and glorifying and pleasing one or the other, sorry about you, right? All right. You... You do not glorify God if you don't speak about Jesus. Do you see that in the text? You rob yourself of joy if you let flattery replace honesty and truth. You rob God of glory and yourself of joy if you, will, if you are always about money and you let it drive your decisions and you let it dictate how you interact with other human beings. You rob God of glory and you rob yourself of joy. You rob God of glory and yourself of joy if you act like God is not witness and He's not watching you. If you seek glory from people and not God. If you make your personal demands more important than other people's spiritual needs. Paul made their spiritual needs more important than his personal demands. Amen. Look, I'm, I'm just breaking down what he's saying here. Listen, you rob God of glory and yourself of joy if you're a jerk and not gentle. There's a place for gentleness, men. Do you hear me? I'm not an expert in this, but I've heard. There's a place for gentleness. Do, do not love people well. 
Just give them info and not your life. Attend church services, but don't actually give your life to people. Don't let people... You want to rob God of glory and yourself of joy? Don't let people become dear to you. Isn't that what verse 8 is saying? Don't let people close. That'll rob God of glory. That'll rob yourself of joy. Be lazy. Avoid work. Make sure the church burdens the immature, not the mature with all the, the heavy work. Do not proclaim the gospel of God. Do not live holy. Live questionably. After all, it's your life. Who can tell you anything? Exhort no one. Encourage no one. Challenge no one. Be a spiritual deadbeat dad. An absentee father who takes responsibility for no one's faith. You'll rob God of glory. You'll rob yourself of joy. Run and hide at your houses and don't do gospel community. Don't be a father figure that helps mature and develop and exhort and encourage and helps lead other people to Christ. Instead, stiff arm any sort of intimacy that might seem dangerous. And by the way, it is dangerous, isn't it? Be a deadbeat dad. Isn't that what he says? I exhorted you like a father. So if we want our coming to not be in vain and want to be meaningful, we cannot do these things. Amen or oh me. Now look at this. 2 verse 7. I want to break down one part of this and and maybe I'm going to make about three points and I think that, that they all stuck out to me. But we were gentle among you. Everybody say gentle. Gentle among you. Like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we are ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our own selves. Because you have become very dear to us. So here's the thing about moms. It says we were, this is just hilarious to me because the Apostle Paul, writer of two-thirds of the New Testament, just compared himself to a breastfeeding mother. I got lots of sermon illustrations. That one's never come on the queue. Okay? He says, I'm among you like a mom. And when I think about moms, I think about uh, my wife and how she's the distributor of Band-Aids. Right? And how, for whatever reason, I have never been able to comfort my kids as well as she has. Right? And I start to think about how moms nurture. I know this isn't our Mother's Day sermon, so just soak it up now. All right? nurture and love and that you run to them, you get care, right? They smell better than dads. And Paul is going to say, my discipleship for these people, the investment was like a nursing mother with her baby. And I, I instantly ran, we got young kids and all the moms and maybe a couple of the dads that are, that are solid in here would say, everybody knows that yell from the bathroom for a one or two year old. Three-year-old, five-year-old. Depends how your potty training's going. Anybody know what yell I'm talking about? The kid's in the bathroom, and, and they're yelling for dad, right? There's some nastiness in that bathroom that nothing has ever prepared me for. And don't moms go in there and clean up the kid? Don't they? Y'all know what I'm talking about. They want someone gentle in there. You know, working with their hind parts. When, when the mess is like hitting the fan, they call in mom, don't they? And they would yell across the house from mom. Here's one thing. Uh, my wife's a nurse, so uh, that's real helpful when our kids bleed all the time, so it's really great. It's just God's sovereignty. And uh, the bad thing about being married to a nurse is they come home with stories. So when they have a story, it's like, you will not believe whose leg like snapped in half and just bled out pus. And I'm like, we're eating dinner. Like, you got to quit that. So we've had tension with that. But my wife actually told me something uh, a long time ago. And because I listened to my wife, note this. <laughs> like, it stuck with me and it came into this. Biologically, do you realize that when a mom, I'm going to talk about breastfeeding, so men, brace yourself. 
I hear about this stuff all the time, so it's whatever. Um, she delivers babies, so she's involved with their care. When a mom breastfeeds, um, the baby gets milk from the breast. That's how that works. And as the baby eats, the, ba- the baby actually spits a little bit, and that spit goes into the woman's breast. Okay, there's an exchange there. It's fluids, it's biology, all right? The mom's body, not evolved, created this way, takes the information from that spit, okay? And if the baby has an illness or a sickness, the mom's body will actually create antibodies and and stuff for their immunity and pump it in the next round of milk that the body makes. Yeah, who planned that out? (laughs) Wasn't a man, you know, (laughs) that's the Lord. Like that that baby could be sick and when it spits and it's breastfeeding, it's getting its nourishment. At the same time it's getting its nourishment, it's also getting access to the medicine that it needs from the mother's body. And if you ever realize that breastfeeding moms are usually tired, right? They go without sleep. They've got to feed at all these different hours. Do you realize that the food that they eat somehow miraculously becomes milk? I don't know how all that works, but it does. And that from a woman's body, she can actually like grow a human inside of her, birth a human, and then feed the human all from their, her body. When you really think about men's contribution to, to birth, it's really pretty lame. And like women's bodies are amazing. And Paul is saying in a weird way, which is kind of weird for me, he's saying it's like I gave my soul to nourish these Christians in this church. And, and the picture he took from biology and from nature and from God's creation was the way a mom nurtures a defenseless, helpless newborn from her body. So when we think about serving in the church, it's more than just occupying hours. We're talking about people giving their lives to one another, aren't we? A mom, listen, parenting's hard. Being a mom is hard. That's why a lot of people outsource it or they just don't do it. But is there anything more rewarding or intimate between a a mom and a child and a mom raising and rearing that child? And Paul is coming to that and saying, I feel like that kind of parent. Now, he's going to play off the other one as well. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil, we work day and night. Sounds like a dad. That we might be a, not be a burden in you. Because, by the way, parents are responsible to take the burden of the child. The child's not supposed to take the burden of the parent. In our messed up society, sometimes we've got parents being raised by their children. But the way it's supposed to work is parents take the burden of children. While we proclaim to you the gospel of God, you are witnesses. And God also, how holy, righteous, and blameless was our conduct towards you believers. For you know, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you. And encouraged you. And charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God. Dad's in the room, look at me. You want a verse talking about some of your tasks with your children, your discipleship? I want you to meditate on this this week. What does it mean for our fathers in this church to exhort, encourage, and charge to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory? He says, so over here we got the breastfeeding mom analogy. Makes me uncomfortable. Over here, much more comfortable. A father. And I don't know about you, but for me, I see in this exhortation, have you ever um, heard of something called the dad voice? Here's what the dad voice is. Mom's been griping at the kids all day in her usually higher voice. Now, if you're a smoker, you may have a lower mom voice, but that's a different thing. Usually mom's higher voice. Dad comes in. You know what dad does? He drops octaves. Right? And you see a kid's spine snap into a different position. And mom's like, why don't they listen to me like that? Right? I don't know. But fathers have a unique ability to drop some octaves, which is usually like getting down there to Ronnie Posey's like normal speaking voice, right? (laughs) Drop some octaves, and kids in sober-mindedness and focus listen better. I don't know how that works. It's just a thing that happens. And so what he's saying here is that like a father, 
He comes and exhorts. I love this word exhort because it, it makes me think of coaching. And, and for us, we don't, well, maybe coach, you think coaches are jerks, but like I didn't think my coach was a jerk when he yelled at me for doing things that were wrong. I've had coaches yell, call me everything but a white man, yell at me and call me names and, and point out things and be incredibly judgmental and critical for my good. You got anybody that loves you and actually has an all-access pass that can actually tell you the truth and you not get offended and run away. Or I'll say it another way. Do you have any father-like figures in the faith who are helping shepherd you? And it might even crack, you know, the paddle out of one's way when you're acting the fool in your faith. Do you have anybody charging you to walk worthy of the gospel you proclaim with your lips? Because, I, I, I mean, if, if we were true, if we could be honest in parents in here, doesn't it, it sort of mortify us just a bit when our kids act crazy in public in ways that we've told them not to act? And you, Have you ever seen a parent grab a kid by the shoulder with like the Vulcan death grip and bring that kid over and say, we don't act like that, right? Our family, Corsos don't act like that. Right? You ever seen someone pull a kid into the bathroom and they ain't got to pee? That's called exhortation. And challenging them to walk worthy. The Bible's going to say, you know the parent that doesn't love their kid? It's the parent that doesn't discipline their kid. Because God loves you and he disciplines you. And we all love that idea in sort of an ambiguous, mystical way, but we don't like it whenever we're actually letting people into our lives and actually, we've got to give an account for where we're spending our money or how we're treating our wives or how we're yelling at our kids, you know, across the house. You hear what I'm saying? And so he says, I came among you like an exhorting father. Okay, let's keep going. I'm going to read the rest of this. And I'm going to leave some verse 17 on um, for next week because I think it fits better with chapter 3. And we also thank God constantly for this, that you received the word of God that you heard from us. You accepted it not as the word of men, but as it really is the word of God, which is at work in you believers. By the way, you people that have believed the gospel, did you know the word of God is at work in you? It's at work in you putting to death the old man and bringing to life the new man. It's a mark of being chosen of God and believing in the gospel that the word is at work in you, which he argued in the first chapter. It says the word as it work in you. You know God's not done with you people. And I love here that he says that you received it not just as the word of men, which a lot of the world will come and say, that Bible's got errors because it was written by men. And they'll come in and say, how could it possibly be perfect and flawless and inerrant? And the church had come, and I, and I, I just say to them, well, in that moment, you either have to believe more in the sinfulness of men to pervert the word, or you have to believe more and the sovereignty and power of God to protect the authorship of his scriptures. And how you answer that question is probably going to dictate how you answer the gospel and whether you think sin is sin and gospel is gospel. The church would come and say, God, through their personalities and their pens, used the pen of men, but God in his spirit spoke through that and trumped any sinfulness that men might bring into his word to preserve for all time his witness of scripture. And the church, one of the things, I love what Calvin says about this. He says one of the marks of the church is that when you get saved and filled with the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit in you says that this is God's word. It's pure and it's powerful. And without the Holy Spirit, we can never expect the world to understand that it's something beyond just the authorship of men. Ain't got time to go any further in inerrancy, but I'd love to talk more. For you, brothers, became imitators of the church and God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. That's the Messianic Jewish Christians that were started in Judea. He, they imitated them. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen. So we had Jew-on-Jew Jew crime for the sake of the gospel in Judea, and now we got Gentile-on-Gentile Gentile crime up in Thessalonica. And what he's going to say is, the crimes they're doing against you because of the gospel shows that the church in Judea and the church with you former pagans is one church, two places. You hear it? 
who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out. That's pretty good company. He's saying you're in the company of Jesus and the company of the prophets. Oh, that God would count this church worthy of such great company. They displease God and oppose all mankind. How do they oppose mankind, Paul? By hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. So as always to fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them at last. We see this as probably an interpretation of the destruction of Jerusalem at 70 AD. That the, that the temple is going to be destroyed and the temporal consequence of crucifying the Son of God is that Jerusalem is going to be destroyed and the temple to this day has not been rebuilt um, or occupied by the Jews. And so he's going to come here and say, you're an incredible company and that the nourishment that you're getting feeds churches in Macedonia and Achaia and Judea and it's this network of God doing something worldwide. And so... Um, my argument, my final point here is that we're growing together. We're not, we're not increasing the amount of isolation in this church. We're trying to turn up the temperature of intimacy and connection and love for one another. We're growing together. We're trying to do some things. We've got house churches planted everywhere. We're serving with kids. And in the future, we've got heart for missions and serving together to do those things. And, and it's not going to come... And, and, and a good church is not going to come with consumers constantly coming saying, what can I get from this church? What can I get from this church? What can I get from this church? But it's going to come with people transformed by the gospel with giftedness and pure motive saying, what can I give to this church? What can I give? What can I give? What can I give? And listen, I am not just talking about money because I know some of us, it'd be much easier to write a check than it was to give our lives to other people. It's not less than given resources, but it is certainly more. And you see these people had a good leader who preached the gospel to them and gave them an example of giving not just the knowledge of the gospel, but their very lives. His very soul. Um, he'll go on to say in verse 19, what is my crown of boasting before the Lord? He'll go on to talk about is it not you? Do you realize, I, I would argue that the crowns that Paul lays at Jesus' feet, which was talked about in Revelation, is the disciples and the lives that he impacted with the gospel. You want to know what your crowns to lay at Jesus' feet? Right? It's not that you didn't cuss on Monday. It's the disciples you made. It's the lives you impacted by the gospel. And that's going to be your worship in eternity. And in order to do that, you've got to be connected to other people. We've got to serve together. This church has got to become closer and network and has to feed and encourage one another. I'm, I'm so humbled by the example of the deans and how this church has prayed over them, loved them, and the stuff with Jamie. Listen, this church is here for itself. It serves what you, serves one another. And that's we have great strength and power in that. All right, last picture and then we're done. Um, I may be wrong in this because I'm not from here, all right? So I, if you're Googling right now, I feel free to be wrong, but this is the research I did. Um, do you realize there's this tree called an aspen? Who here knows what an aspen is? I'm new to aspens. They're a beautiful tree. Some say one of the most beautiful trees. There's clusters of them. They usually grow in packs together. Um, one thing that I learned this week is that an asp, a single aspen is not by itself. Do you know that? but that actually each tree is a manifestation of a network below the surface that is going on. A cluster of aspens, aspens, I'm going to say a bad word here in a minute, aspens, a cluster of them is actually one tree with different manifestations above the ground. Deep embedded is a root system that shoots up all the aspen trees in the cluster. And so a single aspen is not a whole thing by itself. When you are looking at a forest of aspen trees, you are looking actually at a single organism. It shares nutrients and resources for the good of the whole. For instance, if you have tall aspen trees, they take in the sunlight that smaller trees in the shade may not have access to, but they send that nutrient down into the system and that 
energy is diffused to the smaller trees who actually don't even have access to the same sunlight. Crazy. Right? Um, The smaller trees and other trees on the ground, they're absorbing nutrients from the soil and passing that along to the cluster, the grove. You know, it's actually a group of aspen trees are actually called clones, which is a creepy name, right, for trees. And so small, big, they're all playing their part. They're all taking nutrients and are diffusing them. Um, do you know that aspen trees grow even in winter? They can have incredible adversity or harsh conditions, and if they continue to grow, when other trees may lie dormant. Um, do you know the aspen trees, they've seen this in science, that they actually, if there's a sick tree in the cluster of aspens, that they will actually take from healthy trees nutrients to make sure that that weaker sick tree is taken care of. Isn't that crazy? Do you know the largest aspen cluster or grove, which is a single organism, is in Utah, and it's 6,600 tons. It's huge. I love this picture for our church. As people that have been drawn together by the gospel, as, as people here that are mature, and people here that are just figuring this Jesus thing out, and we've got immaturity in our house, that we would share the resources and the Holy Spirit and the gifts that God has given us for the good of the cluster. And that it wouldn't be just single trees isolated, but it would be a network together where we can survive hard winters, which, by the way, I think happened here. And that we can be fruitful together. My argument here is that we have to have such an experience with the gospel and the word of God at work in us and understand how God has gifted us and drawn us together where we give our giftedness and the truth in our lives to others. All right, let's pray, and then we'll go. As you bow your heads, I'm going to have the band come. Maybe today you've been challenged that you're on the bench, you're not invested, you're not coming in any meaningful way, you're not, you're not drawn in in any meaningful way, and there you're coming and going to this church, you're coming and going to work, is vanity. It's clocking in and clocking out, and it means nothing. And today, God is coming and saying, trust me, have me, be nourished by me, such that you can take that nourishment to all the places you're going. We're going to have elders at the back to pray. We're going to sing together. Um, Today, just as God leads you, repent, believe the gospel. We pray for you. Father, I thank you that I'm not alone and that you've drawn me into this family, this cluster of people. And that when days when I'm weak, God, you can use the strength of others. Days when I'm strong and others are suffering, you've put us in each other's paths to help each other. Father, I thank you for the example of Paul and the coaching he gives us so that we don't waste our lives with vain coming and going, but God, that we can actually have meaning and purpose in all the plays you're drawing us to be gentle like a mother and encouraging like a father. And people who are like Jesus, who don't just send information from heaven but they send you sent the flesh and blood son of God to die for our sins to conquer our sin our death our hell you loved us so much that you got involved with your very blood thank you so much for that gospel thank you so much for Jesus may he always be the center of this church we pray that in the strong name of Jesus everyone said amen you guys want to stand we'll sing